Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome in to the Jeff Andreas Show. Thanks for tuning in here with me today. It's Thursday, May the 14th. Got a good show lined up for you here today. PC's Minister of Energy, Mines, and Petroleum Resources, Bruce Ralston, will join me in just a little bit. We're going to talk about a new program that was announced yesterday to help clean up some dormant and orphan gas wells throughout British Columbia. That was announced yesterday as part of a, a press conference held with uh, Premier John Horgan. So I'll be joined by uh, Minister Ralston. We'll go over sort of what this program entails and how it's going to help support new jobs here in the province. And to end off things today, I'll be joined by Dave Korzynski with the Angus Reid Institute. We'll go over some recent surveys done to see how Canadians feel about China the United States, and also how sports fans are feeling about the possibility of empty seat games. But to begin today's show, I am joined on the line by BC Health Minister Adrian Dix. Minister Dix, how are you doing here today? Yes, I'm doing well. Good. Glad to hear it. Thanks so much for uh, taking the time and continuing on with our uh, weekly chats here. Really appreciate it. Okay, so first question, of course. Victoria Day long weekend here. Uh, parks are set to reopen for day use beginning today. What, what is the message that you have for people here uh, when this long weekend does come up? I know we saw a pretty good response from people um, in the previous long weekend, and I'm sure we're hoping to see a, a similar response here this coming long weekend. So just what is your message to people right now who are you know preparing for three days off here? Absolutely go outside, but stay local. Uh, this is not the weekend to travel. It's not the weekend to go to second homes. It's the weekend to, to stay close to the, the home. Of course, to be outside, to enjoy this uh, beautiful province on what is at least one of my favorite weekends of the year, uh, because uh, there are a few fewer obligations, except for those people living in Victoria, have a big parade, uh, historically, right? Mm -hmm. Not this year. And so, but I think we need to stay. We need to stay close to home, and uh, and uh, I think that's a real concern. And you know, it, it's sometimes people feel this as a contradictory message. You know, people in the Shushua, people in Camus, people all over the place love to greet visitors on a regular basis. The economy, in many cases, uh, depends on that. But this year, um, we've got to deal with the spread of COVID-19. We're looking. We're opening up essential. Uh, uh, scheduled surgeries. We're addressing significant issues in the economy, and we've got to be more concerned about physical distancing now because more of us are going to be out than before. And uh, that means uh, if you don't need to travel, you don't need to go to your second year cottage, then don't go. What, what if you do have to do some traveling, right? What if there is a, necess a necessary reason for you to, to have to kind of leave your home community for even a day or two? What, what is your message to those people as well? I heard you yesterday maybe talking about, um, you know, bringing your own supplies wherever you might be going just to avoid, um, you know, any contact with people in a different community. Yeah, I think you need to be respectful of the people in the community you're going to visit. So one way to do that is to not arrive in a town and immediately head to uh, to save on foods or to to uh, Safeway or wherever you might go, but to uh, bring your own food so that you're not so you're able to, in a sense, maintain your bubble in the new community if that happens. I mean, we prefer people not engaged in non-essential travel. Sometimes it is essential. It's very important not to judge people, as we all tend to do, including me, sometimes when they're doing things. But it's important that we be respectful of one another. And I think if you're traveling to, uh, whether it's to, I don't know, to the to the Shushwap, to the lake, to uh, in people in Metro Vancouver, to, to the Sunshine Coast, that if that 
if you have to do that for whatever reason, to be respectful of the communities and uh, bring your own stuff, so you don't uh, you don't immediately create lines in in supermarkets and so on. Now, uh, one of the main questions that I've been hearing from people that, uh, you know, it seems a little bit unclear or uh, just really difficult even, I guess, to, to start having this happen, but people are wanting to start visiting loved ones, right, in long-term care homes or in hospitals, and um, it's just a really difficult thing for, for, for them to do, right? There has been some talk about potentially having one loved one be able to visit some people, but just the logistics around a home with, you know, 100 or so residents, it makes it really complicated. So what what uh, what's the update in terms of when people might be able to really start seeing their loved ones in person uh it's the most difficult thing one of the most difficult things we deal with right um but it's not going to be soon uh there's not going to be a change in the policy in general soon uh and the reasons for that are very straightforward we had 299 cases in a long-term care home or an acute care unit that are outbreak cases 84 people have passed away that's in bc and, uh, and so that tells you how at risk people are in those circumstances to COVID-19. We've witnessed the thousands of people who've passed away in other provinces and what's happened in other countries. So these are necessary restrictions to protect people's basic health. But that said, it is unbelievably difficult. It affects my family too and people close to me as well. Not being able to see them, especially at these times of high anxiety, important in, in most long-term care homes those visits are at the center of people's health so we know that there's a huge cost and we're looking at things that can be done but right now um, those rules are going to have to stay in place for some time and um, there is no question that that's inc- incredibly difficult for people is the one question when i'm calling people who email me which i try and do on a regular basis some of them um, I hear about most and I talk to people about most and I know how how much people are hurting both the people in long-term care and the family members who would love to be with them. And that's got to be pretty challenging, the fact that there is no no timeline, right? You can't just say, well, hold on for a couple more months and then it will happen. There really is no drop-dead date for when something like that could happen. It's, uh, it's got to be a pretty difficult question to try to answer, especially when you know people are probably really desperate to, to have those in-person connections. Uh, absolutely, and those in-person connections, you know, everybody understands are important for people's well-being and how they're enjoying life, but also for their health. So it's a real loss, and it's a very, very difficult choice to have to make. But, you know, it's not uh, allowing regular visits. It's not just affecting. And some people say to me, well, uh, my loved one, I mean, we don't mind the risk, right? But it's not just a risk for them. It's a risk for many people. And you see what happens when um, COVID-19 spreads through a care home. We have people in the hundreds of individual care homes in other Canadian provinces who have uh, got sick. We have one care home which had, uh, between staff and residents, 80-plus uh, people who got sick. And so, uh, and many of them died. So, uh, you know, 20 in the case of uh, the Lynn Valley Care Home, for example, so in North Vancouver. So, you know, these are very difficult judgments. This is a time of pandemic. And um, but this is of all the decisions that we've made, it's one of the most difficult. And I never lose sight of the fact that it has an impact on people. 
And when we're talking about long-term care homes, of course, one of the the new policies that has been uh, or is being adopted right now throughout the province is uh, working at at single sites, right? Having long-term care workers working only in one facility. You've been providing an update every Thursday, I believe, the last couple of weeks, and a lot of progress has been made. And I don't know if you can provide the specific numbers, but just even a, a general update of how that process is going. It sounds like quite a bit of progress is being made on that plan. Lots of progress is being made. It involves about 7,500 workers, and you have to make sure that every that you're not taking everybody from one long-term care home, for example, because we have to maintain care and uh, care levels everywhere. But progress is being made. I think it's an important change. I think the efforts done by medical health officers in the region to protect people in long-term care have been extraordinary. As you know, there have been uh, two outbreaks in the Interior Health Authority in total, both involving just one person. Uh, and that's, uh, I think, reflects the uh, extraordinary work by both people working in care homes and by Interior Health and by everyone involved to keep people safe. And uh, obviously we want it to continue that way. And so these are some of the measures we're taking. And uh, I'll be announcing at 3 o'clock the weekly update. I think uh, uh, there's about 545 care homes that are affected by the single site rule that have people who are working in multiple sites in the whole province of BC. Uh, last week, more than 300 of them had implemented the single site, and uh, we'll have more progress to announce at 3 o'clock today. All right. Well, I'll uh, keep my eyes out for that. Um, I also wanted to ask about PPE supply for outside of the healthcare sector. I know that's sort of been the focus for you guys throughout this in the health ministry is to make sure that our, our hospital workers, our doctors, our nurses, they are, have the equipment that they need in order to do their job in a safe and secure manner. But of course, as we get into this phase two, I know there's a lot of uh, you know small businesses that are looking to open up but do need to have some form of PPE in place in order to uh, you know allow people to come into their businesses. I know I was speaking with hair salons and they need to have, you know, um, masks on themselves as well as their clients. I mean, is there anything that the government is doing or even the health ministry specifically when it comes to being able to supply some of those businesses with personal protective equipment? Well, our task in the health ministry is to deal with the health system. Of course. And there are real challenges there. The global supply chain for for uh, respirators has been N95 respirators, effectively masks, have been hugely interrupted. We've gone out and obtained about 3.7 million of them, which we're testing. And there's places where you test the quality to make sure the masks are safe. So there's a huge effort in the healthcare system. The healthcare system is going to continue to have to build a stockpile for the healthcare system because COVID-19 isn't going away anytime soon. And that's what we're going to continue to do and and keep our workers safe. I think... um, I would say outside of the healthcare system uh, that there is a role for non-medical masks and people are working and showing lots of imagination and producing them. But the most important things we can do are physical distancing, are barriers that, such as plexiglass barriers, are making sure that there's only certain numbers of people in the stores, in beauty salons, making sure there's no waiting area. Right, and so all of those things are really important, and uh, and uh, things and masks can be important too. But they're one tool, and all of those other things are, as we've seen in terms of stopping the spread, even more important. So uh, that means real challenges for for businesses because um, you know you still have to install those things. That still has a cost, and it's a cost that comes at a time when uh, other costs are high, and of course revenue isn't coming in. Right, and mm-hmm. so um, everybody's working on all of those things together, and I think 
as I say, non-medical masks can play a role in that. But uh, I don't see us in the Ministry of Health supplying those in general to the population medical masks anytime soon. That's just not a realistic mm-hmm. possibility. Okay, fair enough. I just thought I'd, uh, I would ask because I know it is a, an issue that is going to be coming more to the forefront as we getting through that restart plan. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time, Minister. Always appreciate it. Hey, take care, Jeff. Talk to you next week. All right. Looking forward to it. That was BC Health Minister Adrian Dix. Well, let's take a quick break here and coming up, well... It's uh, a show of ministers here in B.C. today. So I'll be joined by the province's Minister of Energy, Mines and Petroleum, Bruce Ralston. So stick around, and the Jeff Andrea Show will be back shortly. The voice of your community, Radio NL 610 AM News Talk at RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. Welcome back to the Jeff Andrea Show. Thanks for being with me here today. The uh, province is supporting jobs for BC workers in the oil and gas service companies to help clean up the environment and help restart the economy. It was announced yesterday the restoration of more than 2,000 orphan and inactive wells with the program supporting upwards of 1,200 jobs. I'm joined on the line now by the Minister of Energy, Mines and Petroleum Resources, Bruce Ralston. Minister Ralston, how are you today? Pretty good, pretty good. Good. So let me just start by getting you to sort of summarize this announcement here for me, because there's three different programs that are being announced as part of this funding. Um, Just give me some details if you can, and and we'll go from there. Sure. Okay. I'll try to keep it not too long, but there is a little bit of detail I want to get into. So the federal government, as part of uh, their package for the oil and gas industry, gave British Columbia, the government of British Columbia, $120 million for uh, the cleanup of different uh, dormant and orphan wells. So if I can just give you a little bit of a definition. Please. A, a dormant well is a well which uh, typically, more in the British Columbia context, typically a natural gas well. About 90% of the wells in British Columbia for natural gas uh, and uh, less oil as opposed to Alberta. Uh, it's been inactive. In other words, they haven't been pumping anything out of it for five years in a row and it's extremely unlikely to be returned to service. The government in the last year set out some rules for dormant wells. In other words, the company, a dormant well means that the company is still solvent, it's still active. Uh, they have obligations under the rules that we passed to, to begin the cleanup in a certain period of time. That's uh, rules that are very much like those in North Dakota and Texas. An orphan well is a well where the owner of the well is either gone broke or has disappeared and it's fallen to the province to take on the obligation to clean it up. So what, what cleanup means is basically capping the well, uh, closing it off, taking the uh, sometimes the machinery, the compressors and the pumps and all that sort of stuff that's around the surface, but taking that away. And then a further part of it would be to begin to reclaim the land uh, and grow vegetation. So the the goal is to return it as it was before the well uh, appeared on the surface. British Columbia has about uh, 25,000 oil and gas wells. Of those, only 357 are considered orphan in that category. And there are about uh, close to 7,500 dormant wells that need to be cleaned up. So the program uh, focuses one hundred million on the dormant wells to get them going. Orphan wells, there's already a program, and uh, but this will supplement that program. And then finally, what they call legacy sites. And back in the day, they would do what they called seismic uh, studies, and, and when they search for oil and gas, 
in order to do a seismic they'd cut out uh, basically a line which is kind of like a, a telephone uh, right away or, or uh, through the bush and the forest and just take all the vegetation off and, and then leave it so the idea is that not have certain implications for uh, caribou herds because predators use that as a route so the idea would be that they would be basically revegetated, tree planted and vegetation so that they, 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 those lines would disappear. So that's a, a third part of the program. So the work would be done and will be done by a British Columbia, they call them oil service companies. These are not the big companies that are doing the extraction. These are field service companies that do the work out in the field, setting up, in this case, dismantling the well. So. These will be, will be limited to B.C. companies, B.C. workers. And so we estimate that the take-up will create, uh, our estimate is uh, 1,200 or so jobs in the northeast of the province, Fort St. John, Dawson Creek, uh, in that uh, part of the province. So that's what we uh, announced, and uh, we're, uh, it will be open for receiving applications at the end of the month, May 25th, and uh, we anticipate people will be out in the field fairly shortly. There is uh, the Oil and Gas Commission knows many of these companies and there's companies that have a, a good reputation are able to do the work and in this case uh, want to do the work. Yeah, so with that being said, right, this programs or these three programs are going to support upwards of 1,200 jobs. You mentioned they're going to be British Columbia jobs, um, mm-hmm. and these aren't necessarily, you know, people who are in those the, with those big companies that are doing all the all the drilling and excavating. So, are these 1,200 new jobs? Are these jobs that you know wouldn't really have uh, support otherwise? Well, what uh, the the Orphan Well program, uh, the Oil and Gas Commission had a people were getting ready to go out in the field. But what this does is dramatically expands the work that's available and uh, those companies will have work available that they probably would not have otherwise had so hard to say whether it's new jobs it will be work for the those companies that are in existence and they'll be able to fully employ i would think they'd be able to take on uh, new people to get the work done because there will just be more of it the program is set to go over the dormant well program, the $100 million, is set to go over two seasons, so it would be this season and then and next season. So we figure, um, and you know, again, this is an estimate, that about 2,000 uh, wells would get cleaned up between the dormant well, or the, the, the dormant program and the orphan well program. So that's a, a big uh, reduction of the environmental liability. I mean, the, the Auditor General, who's an independent officer of the government of British Columbia, has pointed out that companies that have had the benefit of drilling and extracting oil or gas really have an obligation to the government and the people of BC to, to clean up after themselves. That always hasn't been the case, and so this will uh, accelerate that process So for reducing the long-term environmental liability of the province and just generally good environmental practice to clean it up. Landowners will like it because even if you own the land, the subsurface rights can be uh, acquired by someone else and uh, so landowners communities and indigenous nations will have the opportunity to say hey we think you should uh, have a look at this one here and these ones here and clean these ones up first and the oil and gas commission will take that input in putting together a work plan so with some of the dormant wells or uh, or orphan wells that have uh, irked people for a long time will maybe get on the list and get the work will get done so i think people in the region will be appreciative of that as well 
So what is what is the difference, I guess, like, uh, can you maybe paint a picture from, from how you understand that, right? What, what does it look like now when there is a, a dormant or orphan site in place? And what does it look like once this cleanup is done? Because I imagine it's probably night and day how these uh, sites would, would appear to the naked eye. Yeah, I mean, there, um, there's uh, typically uh, equipment that's on the site. Sometimes it's rusted and, uh, and abandoned. Sometimes and there's no vegetation because they cut it down in order to uh, set up the drilling platform uh, and the pumping uh, equipment. All that would be removed. The, uh, the other uh, part that's a little bit unseen is the possibility of methane uh, leaks. So methane is a very uh, destructive uh, greenhouse gas. Um, so if there's faulty equipment or uh, aging equipment, sometimes there continues to be methane leaks. All of that would be secured. The equipment would be uh, repaired or removed. Uh, so that's also part of uh, the commitment that British Columbia has made to reduce the methane emissions by 45% over the next five years as well. So, so it has uh, environmental effects, creates good jobs in British Columbia, and uh, fulfills a lot of our obligations. And this is work on the dormant side that the companies are going to have to do anyway. So we're hoping that they'll seize this opportunity and, uh, and do more work than they would have done otherwise. Now, between Orphan and Dormant Wells, we're talking about 8,000 well sites across BC. And you mentioned this is going to help, I think it was about 2,000 of those get cleaned right. up. Is there any right. priority list or is there any way to go about, you know, um, timing which ones are more important than others? Or is this sort of, if you're in a community and you have a site that you want to see cleaned up, you can apply? Yeah, I think the, what, what the, we have the Oil and Gas Commission, which is an, an independent commission, but which is a creature of the government of BC. They have a, a list. They will take input from landowners uh, or communities or First Nations to say, we think you should tackle these ones first. And okay. they would have their okay. own uh, list as well based on uh, their knowledge, their specialist knowledge of different sites and, and which ones are probably the worst or the which ones are, are the oldest which ones really need to be cleaned up, which ones are maybe newer. Uh, they, they would set the priorities uh, in, and uh, supervise the order in which they're done. The dormant wells companies will only obviously be uh, contracting with uh, oil service, field service companies for the, the ones that they own. So um, that will drive the decision on the, on the dormancy side. On the orphan side, I think the Oil and Gas Commission will have a plan that, that will set out priorities and get things done as fast as they can. Okay. Uh, one more question here, Bruce, because uh, I've probably already taken you longer than uh, we had allotted for. But, um, you know, just in terms of the, the program as a whole, obviously really good to see some of these sites getting cleaned up. About one-fourth of them that uh, are an issue right now in the province are going to be cleaned up, which is great news. But does that highlight or does this highlight uh, maybe a gap when it comes to, like you had mentioned off the top there, that, you know, when these companies leave these sites, they should be cleaning them up, but they're obviously not always doing this. I mean, does this just draw attention to the fact that maybe that should be happening a little bit more? And is there anything that we can do in the future um, to make sure that that does happen? When people leave these sites, well, that they're not leaving uh, them abandoned? That, that's, a, that's a great question. And, and part of what the effort of my predecessor, Minister Mongal, was, was to set in place the regulations. That is a, a timetable uh, for dormancy. In other words, a company uh, finishes with a well. It's no longer in production. Like, there's no more value to it. There's a timetable by which they have to... Uh, clean it up otherwise there's uh, certain uh, consequences in terms of penalties that they have to pay so but this is new 
So uh, we're, we're really just beginning the impact of these regulations, and this will really kickstart that program. But in the long run, our goal is to, uh, to clean up all the orphans and to have a dormancy program that to really companies uh, get that done uh, within the time limits that are prescribed. And I think that will uh, create work, but it will also uh, I think help the profile of the industry and its community acceptance uh, in the region. Well, Minister Olson, thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. That was BC's Minister of Energy, Mines, and Petroleum Resources, Bruce Ralston. Well, i got to take a quick break here, and coming up next, I'm going to be talking with uh, Dave Korzynski with the Angus Reid Institute about how Canadians are feeling about China, the U.S., how sports fans are wanting to see something on TV. That's all coming up next. opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show, and thanks so much for being with me here on Thursday the 14th. I am joined on the line now by Research Director of the Angus Reid Institute, Dave Korzynski. Dave, thanks for taking the time. No problem, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Yeah, appreciate it. So uh, a few surveys that have been put out here over the past uh, you know, few days, and, and I wanted to go through at least a couple of them. So I'll start out with the one that was put out yesterday in regards to, to China and how Canadians are feeling uh, about China. 85% of Canadians saying that the Chinese government has not been honest or transparent about the pandemic. So just 14% of adults in this country now say they have a positive opinion of China, which is quite a significant drop from where things were just six months ago. I mean, what, what do you find as the reasons behind this shift? What, what were you able to, to, to figure out here? Yeah, it's, it's been a bit of a downward trend um, since 2017, and there's been a lot of, of uh, you know, I would say bad press, uh, difficult uh, international relations with China, um, and, and that, that kind of goes in a number of different directions. Um, you know, you had the, the arrest of Meng Wanzhou, the the Huawei uh, executive, um, and then China um, detaining two Canadians uh, kind of in response to that. Uh, that. That was where we saw the trend kind of starting was, was the, the back and forth between that and the Chinese government uh, kind of saying that they were... Not not coming out and saying that they were going to uh, you know hold hold the two Michaels um, and, until that was resolved, but but sort of indicating with their actions that that might be the case. There were some uh, restrictions that were pra- placed on Nola that uh, really made people upset in the, in the prairies. That seemed like it was kind of a, a tit for tat. Um, and then what we've seen, like you mentioned, in the last six months is. We had 29% of Canadians who said that they had a favorable view of China in, in 2019. That was down from 48% in 2017, so you could see that trend. But then down to just 14% now. And I think a lot of it is uh, a perceived lack of honesty about what has happened uh, with COVID-19 in China. The timeline for that, you know, there's been some intelligence leaks that um, it, the, the U.S. has suggested that uh, China tried to uh, kind of bury that story for the first couple of weeks um, to kind of preserve its image and, and stock up on medical supplies. Uh, a, r- a real sense that, that the information coming out has not been true or accurate. And the you know French President Emmanuel Macron 
mentioned also last week that he said that he wasn't really believing some of the numbers that were coming out uh, and the rate of infection outside of Wuhan. Uh, so there, there's just a lot of, um, I would say, uncertainty about that. And, and, and Canadians look at it and they're saying, you know, we've got these difficult uh relations with China and we've got a government that we don't necessarily trust right now and you can really see that in, in the favorability with you know 85% saying that they don't think the government has been honest and just 14% saying that they now hold a favorable view of China so that's you know almost a quarter of where it was three years ago so really quite a, a stark downward trajectory. And, and one of the ways you guys broke this down in terms of who is having, you know, I guess more of a, uh, a negative view of China these days, you broke it down by political affiliation. I was wondering if you could figure or just kind of take me through why that was felt as a good descriptor uh, of different people and how they're feeling about this and, and sort of what the results were. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because you see a really, it's a pretty consistent uh, negative view across the board, but what, what you really see the concentration is among conservatives when you go from uh, mostly unfavorable, so there's people that are maybe on the fence lean a little bit negative, they don't have very strong views, to very unfavorable. And when you look at the very unfavorable metric, uh, conservatives 63% compared to liberals at 31%, NDP supporters at 36%. So while they all might be around that 80 to 90% negative view, uh, conservatives are twice as likely to have a strong opinion about it. And there has been some discussion among uh, you know conservative politicians in this country, uh, Andrew Scheer, uh, Peter McKay, who's running for the leadership, saying that, you know, we've got to move away from this relationship with China. They're, they're not a, an ally that can be trusted at this point. And kind of accusing the Liberal government of, of not being willing to stand up against them. You know, we had, there were uh, um, accusations that the Liberals were afraid to say the name Taiwan because of the, the baggage that that carries and, and, and maybe upsetting uh, the, the Chinese government. Uh, they have since, you know, used used the name of, of that country. Um but it is, it's a very uh, kind of tenuous relationship. And I think uh, conservatives are more likely to say, you know, they actually buy that, that argument that we should be stepping a little bit further away. And we actually see Canadians believing that, too, in terms of diversifying trade. The, the percentage who want to actually focus on trade with China is down to just 11%. It was at 40% in April of 2015. And subsequently, you've seen the European Union jump up from in that 30% range up to 52%. Uh, the U.S. is second at 37%. So uh, a, a real focus on kind of Western allies and leaning toward the European Union and, and the U.S. Uh, outside of, of China in terms of trade is, is another trend that we've noted here. Yeah, and so you brought up uh, sort of the United States there. So I wanted to ask a little bit about that as well, because that was part of this survey in response to how Canadians are feeling about China was also looking at how people are feeling when it comes to the United States. And uh, I'm not at all surprised to see that things have gone down here over the early part of this year. Um, you know, a lot of people have been really questioning uh, the president's response to the pandemic, and, and we're continuing to see a lot of questions raised about uh, how effective his leadership is. Um, you know, what, what are you noticing in terms of a trend there and how Canadians are feeling about, you know, how trustworthy the U.S. is right now. Yeah, as we asked about a dozen countries um, and then focused in on, on China and the U.S. And just to give people an idea of who's, who's at the high end, the United Kingdom, 83%, uh, say they have a positive opinion. Germany's at 82, Japan at 80, uh, Italy and France up in the high 70s. That gives you an idea of, of where uh, some of our allies 
are in terms of favorability. And then you've got obviously China at 14%. The United States down to 38%. And what is particularly startling about that is that we have tracking going back uh, long before the Institute uh, was uh, an, an entity, but we've got tracking from uh, different institutions and Veronics in the 80s and 90s, uh, a, a long-standing Canadian polling institution. And then Pew uh, in the United States does uh, world opinions as well. And this is the lowest opinion that we've had for the United States going back to 1981. Uh, and, you know, in the 80s, it was up in the 70s, uh, uh, 70s and 80s. And the 2000s is more in the, in the 60s range. I think the, the war in Iraq was a difficult one for a lot of people. We saw opinion drop during that period. Um, but now it's just 38 percent, and I and I think that that does speak to the fact that um, we've also seen some pretty strong support for keeping the uh, the U.S. border closed. People are very worried about how the pandemic has been handled by the federal government, in particular down there. Uh, we see Trump as as really uh, pretty unanimously uh, negatively perceived in Canada. His his personal approval is usually around, you know, the teens in, in Canada, uh, maybe up to 17, 20% on a, on a good moment. But he's, he's very unpopular here, and he does control so much of the narrative um, in terms of, you know, switching from pandemic response to opening the economy so quickly and, and kind of uh, wanting to move in that direction in a time that I think a lot of people, public health officials, thought was uh, too quick. And one of the things that we see in our polling consistently is that Canadians are showing a lot of patience about when to open things up. We, we did a poll uh, just over the last couple of weeks that said, you know, if, if we were to open certain parts of the society in, uh, on May 15th, would that be too soon? And you had 60 to 70% of people saying that they felt that it was too soon to open schools, it was too soon to open uh, kind of non-essential businesses like barbershops, uh, malls, those type of things. So there's a real, a pretty strong sentiment that it, it is a little bit too early to be opening things up. And, and Trump has really been kind of one, one of the leaders in the let's get this thing moving and get back to normal camp, uh, which in Canada is, is a pretty unpopular opinion. All right. Well, lots to break down there. And I did want to ask at least one question about this sports survey before I did let you go. Um, you guys talked a, a little bit about uh, just how comfortable, I guess, fans are about potentially being in the stands if and when sports do, in fact, return. Um, and also just their appetite to see some sports on, on television, even if it is in front of empty arenas. And um, you kind of broke it down by sports a little bit here, too. Not surprising that people are missing the NHL more than some of the other major ones. You guys looked at Major League Baseball, the National National Basketball Association and the PGA Tour and of course uh, hockey takes the cake not much of a surprise there but um, you know how are fans feeling from what you guys were able to collect I mean I, I know I myself am clearly missing hockey and I'm sure a lot of other people are out there as well how much are people wanting to see some sports on TV in the near future yeah I think people are, are willing at this point to take what they can get you know they've been talking about a 2014 kind of tournament uh, for the NHL to return I think that's kind of piqued a lot of interest uh, at least then our the Vancouver Canucks would qualify I think we're on the outside looking in uh, in terms of what the, the playoff standings were at the pause by a couple of points um, so we asked people you said if, if they do bring sports back this summer is that something that you're interested in or is that kind of not worth it with empty arenas. Only 12% of Canadians said that they felt that it wasn't really worth it, that they shouldn't bother, just kind of skip forward to the next season. 
for 29% and then for 37% of the really hardcore sports fans, they say that that's great and they actually like that arrangement quite a bit. For half, the response is kind of in the middle. They say it's fine, it's better than nothing, um, but it's certainly going to be weird. I think the idea of watching uh, the Stanley Cup final in, in late July when it's 35 degrees out is uh, a little bit weird for people. But most are willing to take what they can get at this point and actually uh, kind of support that idea. The idea of going to a game next year, however, is not particularly popular. Uh, we ask people, you know, suppose that it's October, November, and they've got these leagues up and running, and they're allowing either limited attendance or, or full attendance. Who knows what it will be at the time. Um, and, and we found people, you know, only 28% said they would, they would comfortably go to a game live. Awesome stuff, Dave. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time here. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about some of this. We didn't get to everything that I had on my agenda here, but uh, we can try again next week or, or in the near future, and, and I'm sure you'll have some more data to, to, to take me through then. So thanks so much for your time. Yeah, it never stops. There's more coming out tomorrow, so we'll, we'll chat with you later. That was Research Director for the Angus Reid Institute, Dave Korzanski. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today, so I'll thank all my guests for joining me, and a thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasts, and I'll be back here on Friday at noon.